0: This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons who faithfully support the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are an extremely small team comprised of just two families with a passion for stories and image bearers. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories and rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value this work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way you can support us is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but it has a big impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen.
1: On this At the Bus Stop episode, we had the pleasure of talking to two wonderful people, Marissa Burt and Kelsey McGinnis. They are co-authoring a book about the lies Christian parents believe. Our conversation with Marissa and Kelsey was amazing, and their work is so needed right now. For Johnny Harris, I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast.
0: Hello and welcome back to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. We are super excited for the conversation that we are going to be having today. Way back when we had an episode with a parenting expert, Fresh Start Parenting. It's Wendy Snyder. And you guys really, really resonated with that. And so when I met one of the people that we will be speaking with today and started following her project, I just knew that you guys would really benefit from the work that she and her co-author are doing. So with that, I'm going to introduce you to them. Today, we have Marissa Burt, who is a children's author and clergy spouse, as well as her co-author, Kelsey McGinnis, who is a correspondent from Christianity Today. And we're going to be talking about their project that they've been working on called The Lies Christians Parents Believe. And now... I know that this is turning into a book. So currently, the working title for that is Lies Christian Parents Believe, The Rise of the Christian Parenting Empire and the Ideologies, Theologies, and the Celebrities That Built It. So, wow, you guys are tackling a lot. Can one of you guys explain (laughs) a little bit more? First off, welcome. And can one of you guys dig into that a little bit more? What are you guys doing with this project?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for introducing that. Sorry, that subtitle is really a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) I <laughs> had a hard time cutting it down. But um, yeah, right now we're really excited to be working on this, this book that gives kind of a combination of the historical lay of the land, of the Christian parenting guidance and literature that has um, kind of, I don't know, become this massive market during the second half of the 20th century. Um, So looking at figures like James Dobson that I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of, um, and looking at kind of the precursors to the focus on the family world, and then how that's sort of shaken out into what we have now with this massive world of online Christian parenting influencers who are giving a variety of advice and kind of linking it to what it means to be a biblical or gospel-centered parents. So there's a lot to talk about, um, and
3: we're, we're really excited. Yeah, and our hope would be that this would be of benefit to people who lived this in some capacity. So whether this was their experience in their family of origin as a child, or maybe they parented this way, or they're currently parenting and trying to figure out alternate paths forward, because a lot of these teachings and approaches had significant impact and impacted continue to impact people's future, their their current relationships with their family members as well.
0: So just, you know, a small project you're working on. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am fascinated by by what you guys are doing. I mean, so many of us, especially coming out of this, like, this, like, young, restless, reformed space, Mm -hmm. really, either grew up in this or have been given these as our really only tools to parent the, I'm using air quotes, right way and to raise up children that love God um, and are obedient. And I'm really excited to kind of deconstruct this with you guys a little bit and hear just a little bit more of the roots because I think a lot of times or a lot of us know something's wrong with it. Or we feel that or again, like Marissa, you said, there's broken relationship because of it. Mm -hmm. But we kind of feel lost at sea. Like, what does that mean? How do what are the roots of it? And how do we start pulling at those threads so that we can deconstruct these terrible messages that we've been taught and that are our gut response because of those teachings and as parents now. So Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the theologies that you guys are coming up against that we may have just accepted as truth or that we have internalized.
3: Sure. I mean, there's a lot to explore. I'll start with one and then and see what Kelsey would want to maybe add in. But one I'm currently thinking a lot about is the way many of these resources present the idea of parents Acting as agents of God and almost in godlike ways in the family, they present this as godly parenting. So, you are, you as a parent become the voice of God in the life of your child. And as a result, you can expect, you can and should expect instant obedience, instant compliance, cheerfully, right away, all the way with happy heart is, you know, the common phrase. It has eternal stakes and eternal impact. like there's there's so much pressure on everyone in the family. It's like a pressure cooker to get this right because the stakes have been presented as so high. And parents really then um kind of get stuck in a uh, what is the alternative if they if they intuitively have a pause or feel a check about this, they're often told that they they should mistrust their emotions and choose the good and godly way so it really can keep people stuck because they're not empowered to think critically or maybe try alternate approaches so there's a lot of dynamics at play that reinforce these different elements
2: yeah i i would agree with all of that and i i think for me that the issue that got me interested in doing this research in the first place was um was sin because when i Um, had my first. So my oldest is six years old now. So all of my kids are really young. Um, But my first run-in with with toddlerhood um, really caused me to question beliefs that I didn't even really know I had about sin in children. And just years of hearing things like the first time your one-year-old looks at you and says, no, like, oh, there's, there's that sin nature, there's that rebellious nature. Um, and Christian parents joke about that all the time um, and connect these little quirks of toddlerhood to sin nature, to rebellion, um, sinning against parents, sinning against God, and almost considering those to be the same thing. And when my husband and I started looking for resources for how to how to think about this how to talk about this we were both really surprised and concerned that it did it just didn't seem like there was a lot of careful thought about what that means to look at a one-year-old and say you are sitting against me and sinning against god when you say no Um, And what do we actually believe a child's capacity for sin is? Like, what does that look like? Um, Because as we started looking more broadly for resources and we found some really helpful sources that would talk about things like developmentally appropriate behavior, um, boundary testing, we were like, huh, okay, that seems to describe what's happening here. But I've been so conditioned to see any of that as evidence of sin, and I don't have the tools to untangle that. I don't have the theological tools to untangle that. And we were surprised that we we couldn't find them. Um, and the more reading we started to do about the history of um, how Christians have thought about sin, nature, and children, we realized it's a really complicated picture that you get historically. Um, and that a lot of theologians over the years sort of punt on that question because it is so um, thorny and mysterious. But when you look at Christian parenting literature, they don't punt on that question. Like, um, James Dobson has no problem looking at you and saying that toddler, that's, that's rebellion there. You know, that toddler is just asking for a spanking. You know, they just, they need that spanking to teach them, um, what they're doing is wrong, um, to teach them the weight of their sin. There, there's are so many, um, Beliefs and assumptions under that, and uh, I I really have been looking forward to kind of digging into that and maybe kind of just asking some questions about you know how, how much have we really thought about um, about what underlies that kind of approach to discipline and behavior
3: modification. And once you begin to really pull on these threads, you you see the how connected they are because then it raises interesting questions. What do we really believe sin is? Is Is every parental preference to be obeyed or else it's sin? And what does that teach children for later in life when they grow up um, and are under other people claiming spiritual authority? You know, my interest into this, this project came via abuse advocacy and seeing a lot of echoing dynamics of what was happening in the church family system with what was directly taught in family life teaching, and I really do think they mirror each other, um, and and these expectations of if you disobey authority, spiritual authority, you're sinning. Even if that's a human authority, um, it has long term problems as well outside of even just family relationships.
1: I like how James Dobson just seems to be in so many places, and and not in good, not in a good way. <laughs> Like, it's just crazy that guy's reach. And I mean, I don't think growing up, we, we did a lot of James Dobson in my house. But like, as I've been doing this, like, I can say for myself, like listening to some of his nonsense is insane. But like, it's crazy how far like that his reach is and how it's impacted all of us. One of the things that uh, I found interesting that you talked about was this first time obedience. Can you expand on that a little bit more? What is that? And then, how is that in your? I guess in your work, you know, how have you approached that topic, and what does it mean, and how does that kind of play out into this uh, this research that you're doing?
3: Um, for sure, um, it's you might hear it uh, described in different ways across the teaching. So, so one of the things we're doing is uh, going back to the original sources. So, we're reading a lot of these books. I have a whole library of of used copies on my shelves of. Uh, both the well-known names like Dobson and then some of the other offshoots, because I think he really pioneered the way for Christian parenting expertise to be something people wanted to buy and to consume in a new way in the Christian subculture. Pretty early on, you see this idea that children need to be obey right away all the way and usually with something along the lines of with that with a happy heart delayed obedience is disobedience you hear that as well so the, the idea is if children question if they resist if they don't smile and say yes mom yes dad that's an indication that they're they're really not obeying and what's interesting to me about this beyond you know if you think about it too long it can it can become it can really tear at your heart especially as a parent because in those times, there really were no conversation about child development. Dobson had no indications of that in his writing. There, there wasn't consideration of what is a child's capacity. Do they, do they need to take more time to process a request? You know, uh, are there emotions and emotional response? Is it valid? Do we even see children as persons? All these questions just, just were on the table. Let alone questions of. Neurodivergence or personalities or temperaments that might play into it. So it really was this kind of hard and fast, you will obey the first time right away, without question. And um, otherwise, you 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 really you as a parent need to bring a swift punishment or consequence. And so this idea of child training, and often that term was used a lot uh, because it was to train children to comply, which may sound good and be effective in the very early years, it causes all kinds of problems, certainly in uh, teenage years and young adulthood, because children are separate humans. They do have different responses. They don't always process in the immediate moment. We do hope, I think, as parents that they will be able to think about requests being made of them and be able to say no. Uh, Certainly, when you're talking about the toddler years, saying no is an important part of child development in those years. So so it mixed in a lot of things. But a lot of Christian parents, even today, um, you'll see online influencers use the same terminology, do have that expectation of themselves as parents and of their children, that they would obey unquestioningly and immediately.
2: Yeah. And I would would add to that one thing that you'll see, and I I see it I've seen it recently in a video, some I can't remember who it was, but you'll see this idea of First time obedience um, marketed or described as so so important because if you don't instill that in your child, what if they run into the street and because you haven't conditioned them to obey the first time they don't stop and right. they get hit by a car? Like you'll see this catastrophizing. Like not only is this a godly thing, but it is like if you don't if you don't instill this in your children, they could die. In, like in very real terms and. Um, it scares Christian parents into believing that this kind of behavior modification, this kind of training and conditioning is, um, you know, is is this like safety concern. It's this concern of instilling godliness and um, that, that your ability to do that will set them up to be able to respect authority in the future. There's all kinds of catastrophizing that then gets attached to that um, to sort of justify its
3: importance. Mm-hmm. and it, with eternal stakes it's often said well you need to teach your children to obey the first time without questions so that they can obey god immediately and without question which um you know from a christian perspective is interesting to consider like does god uh certain in on the pages of scripture is that how he engages people is that how we obey <laughs> do we obey uh do we have that expectation on ourselves um and and so i think it it Pokes and prods different things, I think can make people very uncomfortable because these things are presented as they're kind of packaged as easy, almost platitudes or takeaways. But when you start um, examining them closer, it does, I think, de- detangling, deconstruction, it, it does raise questions about what are these underlying things and where where do we all, why have we all kind of collectively agreed? that this is so. Is this historic Christian teaching? Does this align with the way of Jesus? Um, And that sort of thing. And and for me, whenever I think about first-time obedience and the immediate jump to swift consequences, it reminds me, as I've been doing all this reading, I keep thinking of Jesus's parable of the unforgiving servant who has received such grace and mercy and turns around and kind of demands exacting like repayment and and response from the the one entrusted to his care and uh, so i kind of have that rumbling around in the back of my mind when i'm reading this and thinking how are we communicating um uh, an expa- are we communicating the expansiveness and a, and a grace toward our children or expectations of performance and really perfect pr- performance right away
0: I think something that is concerning that I've noticed is that there are a lot of trendy influencers in the TikTok world, Christian influencers, that I see kind of parroting a lot of the stuff that you're saying, young millennials or Gen Z generation people that are out there (laughs) parroting this stuff, but they're wrapping it up in this way that's trendy with music behind it and finger pointing to the things that are important so that your children can love Jesus well and you want to raise up good Christian kids. And what I keep thinking as you guys are talking is back to shiny happy people and the blanket training and the IBLP and how really this is all just... I am i don't know another word to use besides a prettier version of that on the outside. Like it looks, it's much more palatable than smacking your baby that rolls off a blanket, but really it's all the yeah. same thing.
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: as you're talking, obviously our our main mission as a podcast is to share the stories of those who have experienced abuse within the church. And I can't even... I can't help but think to draw those parallels from, you know, as, as a baby with blanket training, like don't explore. You're cutting off exploration. You're cutting off any drive from a child. And it's all just stay in line. Stay in line. Don't ask questions. Don't try to forge a different path. Don't test any other waters. Like It is exactly what I say when I say it. And I think we've all been so shaped like this. And then on top of that, our pastors and leaders have been shaped in this. Mm, So when someone comes to your church that is exploring something different or on a path that looks different than the standard staying in line, that's seen as a threat and that's seen as sin. Even though, like Marissa, you were saying, what is sin? That's not sin. Asking questions is not sin. Going a different route is not sin oftentimes, Mm -hmm. maybe ever. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, it's fascinating to me how much that, this topic and these questions that you guys are asking are actually influencing the entire system of American evangelicalism.
3: Absolutely. You see it. it, it it's layered, right? And it reinforces each other. And um, I tend to think if you are looking at a church, like if you're examining a church's teaching, you can learn a lot by looking at their family life teaching. What are they telling parents is the godly way to parent or are they? Are they setting themselves up to be experts, to to be authorities, to tell parents what to do? Um, And then if you examine that, you can see, well, how the children are treated will be how the children in the church family system are treated. Uh, They all kind of mirror each other. And absolutely, I think the influencers of today are um, rehashing some of these same ideas. It's interesting to me to wonder if they are people who grew up in those homes, or if these are new converts or people who grew up in, in a different environment and so are drawn to the promise structure, because a lot of these teachings offer promises. We call them in our work, prosperity gospel parenting promises, because they make um, cert- claims of certainty and promised outcome. Like do this and your child will be godly. They will be a Christian. They will be responsible and respectful and successful and, and whatever the promises are made, they're sort of saying a parent can and should um, control that outcome. A parent can and should access their child's heart. A parent can and, sh- and could can and should ensure this kind of behavior. And uh, that's not so, right? We, we see that daily proof. I mean, I think looking at even the few, the little statistics we do have, of a generation that was raised in this, exiting the churches and exiting uh, the faith, shows that the promises don't hold and the promises themselves are flawed. These these do not align with the agency God gives each individual to choose to come to him or reject him. Uh, The idea that another human being can access another person's heart and should manipulate that uh, undercuts the reality that Christian teaching acknowledges individuals can relate to God directly. There's not a mediation needed via a parent or a pastor that speaks for God, but um, individuals can come to Jesus. We see this when the children come to Jesus. The parents bring him, bring the children to him, and he, you know, is indignant and upset at the other adults, the disciples, who try and keep the children away. But then he lays his hands directly on the children and blesses them, so children do have spiritual capacity to connect with God as well, um, and a lot of these systems kind of place authority figures as mediators of both Christian teaching and connection with the Lord. so so many you know directions we could go to explore this, but
2: yeah, and one thing that I'd add about the new generation of of Christian parenting teachers, and most of them are are influencers at this point. You know, they're really leveraging social media and their personas and lifestyles on social media to make claims about parenting, to model a certain kind of parenting. Um, These kind of prosperity gospel promises that were offered by people like James Dobson are now being packaged in kind of the aesthetics of Instagram and the online influencer world. And that makes them newly appealing to a new generation of Christian parents who are are conditioned to respond to that kind of aesthetic packaging. And now you have this generation of Christian parents who are associating these um, particular looks, vibes, feelings with what Christian parenthood ought to be like. So when you see Maybe you might think of sort of like trad wife modeling. You can see a lot of that right now if you spend time on Instagram looking at Christian parenting content. Um, And if you spend a lot of time looking at this, you start to associate this aesthetic world with what you think Christian parenting ought to be. And it all gets enmeshed in this aspirational vision of being a Christian mother or being a Christian family or having an ideal Christian home. And it gets really,
3: really messy. Mm-hmm. And I would say it kind of, it gets narcissistic really fast as well. And, and you know, a lot of yes. conversations are happening about narcissism on social media. But I think when you combine that with, with that element that's present in popular Christian parenting teaching that really views children as extensions of parents. So whether that's their children exist to fulfill a godly aspirational ideal, like uh, you know, in, in subcultures like the Quiverful Movement, you know, children exist to fulfill parental goals. But even in more mainstream teaching, children exist, you know, parents believe that their children should fulfill their ideals. Their their children, sh- even well-intentioned parents say, well, we want our children to grow up to be Christians, to follow the Lord, to walk with the Lord. And they have this, this you know, aspirational ideal that's a valuable to them. And they see their children maybe not as separate individual people, but as uh, people who will fulfill that ideal. And so when you combine that with social media, it kind of explodes. So you you do see influencers even more than the original resources putting their families on display, putting their children on display Mm -hmm. uh, kind of in exemplary ways and making – kind of sideways promises, like if you follow, like when you're reading in the print, there may be more direct promises. Dobson saying do this and you'll have a well-behaved kid. You know, people are saying have a new kid by Friday. That's a title of a, a popular book or, you know, they're making those promises. But when you have the visual dynamic, it's all layered in there. And so it really taps into the longings people have for, you know, an idealized, maybe sometimes in the tradwife movement, a look back to an idealized view of history Or even just a longing for close family relationships. I saw an influencer recently kind of put on pretty music and a pretty background and saying, you know, why not have another baby? Because, you know, future you will be so glad to have all your children around the Thanksgiving table with you. And so there's walking in
0: like a beautiful
3: wooded yeah, area yeah, that?
0: <laughs> with their children that are in the ponds, learning exactly. from the earth.
3: <laughs> exactly. And so really tapping into that longing, which, you know, you can't promise that that, that, that that's how future generations play out, that all your adult children, you know, even seeing the um uh, enmeshment there that would presume all my adult children will come around me, you know, and, and not uh, dissing that longing, because I think it does tap into familial longings, but the guarantee of it or using it as a motivator leaves a lot of people, both parents and children alike, betrayed by these promises because they haven't given families tools for how to build connected, authentic relationship. They've given tools for compliance. So then if that doesn't happen, if young adults grow up and they don't become Christians or don't follow the um, presented pathway, uh, there, there are very few off ramps, you know, because a parent who's convinced that's God's way is going to really then often distance the child, the adult child, or it can result in estrangement or an adult child may feel like they have to perform or, uh, you know, kind of cultivate an inauthentic relationship, because there's really no capacity to perceive children as individual persons, even well into adulthood. Um, and, and so anyway, I've kind of lost the thread from influencer <laughs> dynamics. But, um, you know, I do think people who maybe are new parents or new converts are especially drawn to this, this kind of teaching, because it's so attractive. And it's so overwhelming to be a parent and you're looking for help. It's great when someone says, hey, I have the Christian way to do it. That sounds really good, especially if you're feeling overwhelmed or have come from a background where you really don't want to repeat the mistakes you experienced. So you really want to know the right way.
0: I find it fascinating that also most of those people are new parents themselves. Just saying.
1: (laughs) Yes. I'm to come, they can come to my house. I know. Uh, Mike. I, would, they, I would not be lucrative. They'd be like, what the hell is going on in that guy's
0: house? <laughs> Seriously, they're like, I popped a baby out 10 weeks yeah. ago. Let me yeah, tell you just how just... to raise the most perfect <laughs> child ever. <laughs> it's all, they're it's never all... going to watch screens.
1: <laughs> but it's all fear-based too. I mean, all of it, like all of this is based around, I mean, I, I think personally, Dobson, it's all fear-based and it produces this idea that, produces this idea that God is like an authoritarian figure looking down on us, trying to will us into compliance. And if we don't get that compliance, there should be shame and disappointment. And that's like, to me, like generationally, that is so problematic in kids' lives and in our own lives too. And it's, well, I I mean, I'm not on Instagram. I have an Instagram, but I I don't ever go on it. But when I do... And I look through things. I am shocked at the amount of young people that this stuff is being repackaged for, for, through. Like I am shocked by it. Uh, I get it. It kind of blows me away because when you, when people like Dobson and Gothard, when their teachings are being exposed for what they are, it's hard to realize how it's getting back into the mainstream and becoming something that is mm-hmm. popular again. Mm-hmm. And it kind of scares me because. I don't know how we can, with this much going on. That's uh, since you know, I would say over the last you know five five to seven years that we've had in the movement with churches and the exposure of abuses, uh, whether it be through sexual abuse or other types of abuse that have come out. I it scares me that this is still there because to me all of this is like it leads you up to being. it leads you up to other kinds of abuse in the church. And so, I mean, I would love to hear both of your perspective on like how this, you know, this kind of, I guess, parenting style really is um, how it creates kind of like you use the word, like an uncontestable hierarchy in family and why that is dangerous. Um, Well, I guess I'm saying it's dangerous, but why it can be problematic with how we, you know, it, parent our kids, and then how that also bleeds into how we interact as families and churches as well.
2: Yeah, I I think one thing that's fascinating to me about the real like fear based tactics that you might associate with James Dobson. So he wrote a book back in 1990, Uh, with a co-author. I can't remember his name now, but it's called Children at Risk. Um, And it's sort of a a culture war book, you know, about children being in danger. And this is sort of satanic panic years, all kinds of moral panics, moral majority years. Um, And I would say, you know, earlier James Dobson, was striking fear into the hearts of parents about not raising well-disciplined children. Like, you need to be raising well-disciplined children. His first book was Dare to Discipline, kind of setting up this, like, you can be a countercultural Christian parent by disciplining your children because undisciplined children are everything that is wrong with the church, with this country. And in fact, there is moral decay in the West because of it. Um, And that's still there, but it's sort of subtly shifting in a really interesting way over the past 10 years, I would say, from that to panic over children's behavior into more of like leaning into parenting as part of the culture war, part of it's protecting your kids from the corrupt culture and equipping them to be countercultural children and to be salt and light because we need to fight the darkness around us. And so as parenting literature has shifted away from behaviorism and behavior modification, Christian parenting literature is is slower to do that, but it is. But instead of going into what's more mainstream parenting literature has done, it's kind of taken this culture war shift. Um and setting up parents as like, you know, you need to be a soldier in this culture war for the good of your children, for the good of the world, um,
3: which I think is is fascinating to watch. And uh, speaks to, again, the eternal stakes. There's always such, there can be such high stakes in all this parenting teaching. And Jay, you mentioned it's dangerous. I would I would say absolutely. I think uh, the teaching itself in many ways cultivates abuse and in certainly enables it because of the you know the nature of fam- a lot of family life happening behind closed doors so we can look at the more extreme examples you can read the extreme teachings like blanket training or that of Michael and Debbie Pearl who wrote to train up a child um, that was implicated in the deaths of three children. So you can you can look at those things, and it can be easy to say, "Well, that's very fringe," but they are just taking the same principle to logical extremes. Because there's really no cap if you if you believe you're acting as a ga- agent of God's authority. If you believe there are eternal stakes at hand, whether it's What Kelsey was saying, kind of like culture where you need to protect your child, or whether it's that you need to teach them to obey so they can obey God. If you as a parent believe that, and if the tool you are given is your child needs to instantly comply or receive some kind of punishment, and very often parenting literature will still uh, suggest, I think it's one of the most egregious lies Christian parents believe that spanking is a biblical mandate. So parents are still relying heavily on corporal punishment. Or resources will just keep silent on that. You know, the more moderate ones just won't talk talk about spanking. They'll try and play both sides. Uh, but many Christian parents, this is still a hill they want to die on. That that they need to spank their children. When you combine all of those ingredients, there really is no cap. Um, and parents begin to believe that whether it's in Dobson's language, children are asking for spankings, which is very. Uh, ripe for abuse to believe that that children need this, or uh, a more tempered you believe God wants you to do this, and that this is somehow going to teach you, your child something about God, which of course introduces a level of spiritual abuse. That is, all of this is being done in God's name, so children are are carrying that on. They're carrying on that driven perfectionistic treadmill that kind of cultivates some scrupulosity, some some religious anxiety. They they carry that as far as like I need to constantly be performing to be right, but also the the kind of immediate abuse. So this is all happening, it is potential to happen in families. I'm I'm you know trying to spotlight these elements, uh, but, and of course we'll offer the disclaimer that there there are other things that can mitigate this. Not all families that operate by this are only you know operating in these extreme ways, but these are the the underlying tenets that do enable abuse. And when you translate this over to churches, when when young people are raised in this, it's very difficult to challenge that parental voice of authority because it has become God's voice of authority. So then when um, you know a young person is at church and they experience a form of abuse or, A spiritually abusive teaching, or or whatever it looks like, they have no, they have learned no boundaries, they've learned no agency, they've learned instant compliance, they've learned um, that that's what God wants of them. So it's it it really shortchanges people for abilities to protect themselves, to think critically about what spiritual authorities are speaking into their lives, and often it's all reinforced by the community because the most high-control parenting teachings are happening in high-control religious communities, Uh, though many of them are ecumenical because these are parachurch resources. So while someone may not be in IBLP, like this was interesting about shiny happy people, many people who weren't in IBLP or his his family wasn't in Gothard's, you know, under his umbrella of influence, they still were familiar with that teaching because the nature of family life teaching is it's it's not denominational. It just kind of spreads via Christian publishing or word of mouth or in different subcultures, like a homeschooling subculture or young, rest, real young restless reform subculture. You kind of pass resources around. So it really does, I think, enable abuse both in domestic life, but also in church life as well.
0: I think... Um... As you've been talking, I've been thinking about Sheila Gregoire talks often about complementarianism and how most of these churches that are teaching complementarianism, actually these pastors in their lives are much more egalitarian in their marriages, but yet they hold so strongly to these teachings publicly. And while most people, when they explain healthy complementarianism, I'm using air quotes, they explain something that looks a lot like egalitarianism. And she her argument has been, right, then don't teach this version of complementarianism that you're okay. teaching because you're actually enabling the worst-case scenarios to continue being the worst-case scenarios. So maybe you and your own family are not actually acting out the worst-case scenario of some of these parenting teachings that we're talking about today. Yes. Mm-hmm. But as you're talking about these from the pulpit, you are giving words to abusers in their own Absolutely. families and Absolutely. you're giving them the authority of God to do it. So, yikes. Mm-hmm. Big yeah. yikes.
2: Yeah, I think that's I think that's <laughs> things get really thorny anytime you try to have a conversation about spanking and corporal punishment because I think there are so many Christian parents who hold on to this idea that that needs to like, we need to hold on to that as like the ultimate threat. Like it's a last, it's a last resort. You never spank in anger. You always like, they put all of these protections around it to kind of say like, I never do it when I'm angry. I make sure that it's not just me being triggered. I explain to them why I give them a hug afterwards. But if I didn't have that threat, they you know, they, they wouldn't, comply or I need to have it there in order to be able to have that display of like final authority. Um, I've heard spanking described in so many different strange spiritual terms uh, over the years, but it still gives cover because I think if a lot of parents were honest with ourselves and all, you know, being honest with myself, like I it is really hard to be triggered by your child. To it's it's really hard. And there is a desire for Kind of justice or comeuppance in us that, and I think it's um, I think it's naive for us to think that we can have this way of physically harming our children and remove that from the equation. And when you say we can't remove it from the equation, then yes, you do. You give cover to people who can maybe make themselves feel better by saying, "I don't spank in anger," but is the reality that they they actually don't?
3: And I think it really plays into a broader, really, particularly in white evangelicalism, the uh, dis- the disconnection from our emotions. Because even that expectation kind of requires parents to dissociate. Like, I'm, I agree with Kelsey, I'm not sure it's possible. Like, I have six children, and um, you feel a lot of emotions. And those moments that are maybe disciplinary, you... That's when your emotions as a parent are high. And many of us, if we were raised in these subcultures, don't have great tools for emotional regulation. We've had to reparent, or maybe we've gone to good therapists, or or we've learned and tried to find different tools. But the popular Christian parenting teaching essentially offers dissociation. So you're teaching parents to detach from their child so they can inflict pain and to kind of remain detached in the face of their child's pain, because the child responds to corporal punishment, obviously. And then um, so you're cultivating detachment and just dis- disconnection from the relationship, such that I think when parents in later years hear from their older children, that harmed me, I didn't like that. Or even now where adult children are saying, I was spanked, and that was. Had significant impact in my life. Not everyone says this, but many do. Um, The the adult, the older parents are not able to hear this because they, again, like we see in so many spaces, they believe that their intentions mitigate the impact. There's an inability to see good intentions do not necessarily translate to good impact. So they may have thought they were doing the godly thing, and it could have had painful impact. And that's a very difficult truth to reckon with. And that's setting aside the people who are abusive people who absolutely know what they're doing and are intending to inflict harm on another person. But the parents maybe who are betrayed by this teaching and felt like, well, I just thought I was doing what God wanted. I made myself spank. I just, you know, I kind of shut down my emotions so I could do this thing because I was told that if I didn't do that, I was being negligent. They They have then spent years shutting down their emotional response to a child. So um, there's a lot of shame wrapped up in this. And as we try and talk about this on social media, and I want to say it here too, our desire is not to add shame or bring shame. There's so much shame in Christian communities to begin with. Um, And I think it's difficult for older generations to maybe look at this uh, because they were so betrayed by this. They became victims to this kind of authoritative teaching and victimizers that maybe harmed their parents. And so I think that's a lot to reckon with. And the teaching itself, the ways of operating, really left people bereft of how to attempt repair. So there's just defensiveness often. And uh, because if you have to peek into that box and think, oh my gosh, I was being calm and collected. I had no idea. This is what I thought I was doing. If you should peek into that and think, Maybe I didn't have to spank. Maybe I didn't have to hit my child. Maybe there were other ways. That can just be very difficult to reckon with. You know, it's difficult to look at what our parents did and think, as adults, it's always a little challenging to unseat parents from that seat of authority where we believe they did everything right. It can be hard to tackle that. And so if you have to look in that and think, well, Maybe my parents didn't need to spank, or what was going through their heads when they interacted with me this way. So a big turning point for uh, young adults, I think, is when they maybe begin to have children of their own. They see these things afresh, and I do think a lot of you know people in their late twenties, early thirties, begin reckoning with these dynamics who are raised by these principles because the instant obedience lingers long. I think it sometimes delays the development of an individuation that maybe would more typically happen in the teenage years where there's rebellion or resistance or that kind of separation from the immediate family kind of gets delayed to maybe when young adults have their own children or enter a, a dating relationship or encounter people from families that operated differently. Then they begin to question, uh, but it's not—it's not easy work, and there's a lot of uncomfortable feelings and distress that come up with it, and not a lot of support for it. I do think online en- engagement and online communities, similar to the survivor community, have given people a forum to discuss some of these very tender, tender places and tender things.
1: I think that was that was like really well said. Um, and I appreciate the grace and uh, the way you, th- way, way you approach that. Cause I, I do agree that there is a lot of shame in a lot of these things. And we've all, as parents, we've all made mistakes and we've, you know, we've tend to try to say, well, this is what I think you know, I'm supposed to do, or I'm, I'm trying to be, uh, you know, lead my child in a godly way. And I think for me too, one of the things that really woke my, woke me up through, through the years is this idea of original sin and how it was kind of beaten into me that I was just a piece of dirt and and really coming to grasp with how uh, how how expansive God's grace really is in Jesus and and how expansive Jesus was and how he approached people with grace and how that love and mercy is so much more than what I could ever even imagine and that that original sin thing really was coming from a place of control for me personally control authority keeping me in line uh and i'm talking more of like a church church perspective it really had an agenda behind it and really unpacking that that agenda really had nothing to do with god it had everything to do with that control and i think that that was that's been critical for me with how i approach my kids too to understand that like they're kids they're going to say stupid stuff. Like I said, stupid stuff. And that's okay. Cause I want them to be able to say those things and be safe in my house. Cause I'm going to say stupid stuff still. And just giving that space in your house to just allow all emotions to be present instead Definitely. of trying to hinder or hide those emotions. I, I mean, it's life-changing for me and for, for, for my kids too. And I can, I can say too, like growing up, that, that was definitely a place where all emotions were not welcome
3: Bumble. and
1: um and I, and it, w- it was reinforced by the churches I went to like to be conditioned like you have to hinder and hide certain emotions and i I think it's it's it is it is something that we do need to talk about more at churches and I would love mm-hmm. for these types of things to come out uh, at these church you know at churches where we can talk discuss this but it doesn't seem like they want to. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. many of them, They want to keep the foot on the pedal with all the <laughs> yeah. stuff that's, that they keep them in power, which is so, which is so harmful. But have you both found that in this work that they're like, what, what is talk a little bit about self credentialing? Because I mm-hmm. think that happens a lot. And how does that play into some of these? Um, I'm going to call them lies mm-hmm. and teachings that are dangerous to continue to be reinforced specific, uh, sp- especially now and being repackaged mm-hmm. kind of in the social media way.
3: Yeah. Um, I will. I wanted to, I, I'm going to talk to that. I wanted to pop on one thing you said, Jay, cause I thought it was so good when you were talking about just their children, looking at your children and saying, but their children, you know, because this week on Instagram, a really insightful commenter weighed in and I really appreciated her phrasing. She was she was pointing out that if we as Christians believe in God's creativity and design, God designed children in their immaturity and dependence and that they would develop into maturity and dependence. And I really liked that language where she was talking about immaturity and maturing because I, I found that was respectful of children while also acknowledging um. The striking contrast between the expectations of parenting teaching, which which kind of denies that God designed that. There's the expectations that children would act as our idealized, compliant little adults or something. So I thought that was really helpful, helpful phrasing and wanted to share that with your listeners. I liked that. Um, but as far as self-credentialing, and and Kelsey can speak to this too, but I would say so many of these experts do not come with any, uh, notable credentials. Like as I began to dig into the original resources, that was one of the first things I was looking at. I started doing a series just looking at cover copy of these resources to see what we could learn about the marketing approach, what publishers and authors believed, uh, consumers wanted, uh, what they were pitching, kind of how they were depicting children, all these sorts of interesting elements. Um, But one of the things I was looking at was author credentials, and my jaw was on the floor (laughs) the more I looked. You know, you were talking earlier about influencers who were saying this stuff when they had little kids. Dobson wrote Dare to Discipline in 1970. He was fresh out of um, his doctoral program. He's one of the few as a doctorate, though later he kind of renounced psychology as a means of parenting Wisdom, but um, he he wrote this when his he had a toddler and an infant, and you know my jaw was on the floor because it was almost entirely theoretical. And other people like Gary and Anne-Marie Ezzo of Growing Kids God's Way, they you know created this international parenting empire that essentially discipled churches in how to parent. They write in their books how it started. They, it was a couple, some couples sitting around in the living room, sharing parenting tips. And that was it. You know, he, he had a seminary, I think a graduate degree from a seminary in a program for adults who, who didn't get undergraduate degrees. So he kind of went in and and got like kind of a a general master's and his wife was a nurse. And, you know, so they basically were sharing their parenting advice. The way we would. Like, we could probably have a great conversation. We're all parents on this podcast and share advice with each other. But that is worlds apart from telling the world, you know, God's way to parent and speaking with that kind of authority. And book after book, resource after resource, that was people's credentials. They were a parent, maybe they were a pastor. And then with the success of their book, they became a speaker or a conference speaker. And then they often started a ministry. So then so their bios read, you know, like if I wrote a bio on the book I will never write on parenting, you know, it'd be like Marissa Burt, you know, has six children. She's a pastor's wife. And then she wrote this other book. And now she speaks at these conferences. And she started Lies Christian Bel- you know lies christian parents believe ministry she's the president of that that would be my bio which as as you skim it you think oh this person has done all of that but essentially there's no meat to it it's just they were they were successful at book sales or they were a charismatic speaker and so then they're sharing their advice so i think looking at the credentials can really deflate the experts down to what it is some parents sharing their advice And I think the same thing's happening on Instagram. And I've often thought as an older parent, I'm so grateful social media wasn't around when I was starting parenting. I cringe to think what I probably would have popped on and told other parents to do so confidently. But, um, you know, that's what's happening. It's just people sharing their two cents and charging so much more for it.
0: I would love to hear. I I saw a reel, I think, that Kelsey did about this. I'd love to hear from Kelsey what her take is on this current uh, experts, people claiming to be experts that are not experts. What makes an expert? Mm-hmm. And I think this is really important throughout all of evangelicalism or even in the spaces that are being created outside of Western evangelicalism. Because, I mean, Jay and I run into this all the time. There's people that are coaching or there's people that are, <laughs> you know, doing X, Y, Z, and they're charging ridiculous amounts of money and people are paying ridiculous amounts of money. Like, there, it is lucrative to give people answers even if those answers are harmful. So what are we looking for when we're talking about experts? What are some green flags here? What are credentials?
2: Oh, man. So, I, you know, I love to say there is no such thing as a parenting expert. Um, there is no field of parenting there is no person who is certified in like there's no phd there's just no discipline that you could that that will make you an expert in parenting who you consider to be a trustworthy parenting expert depends on the kind of expertise you value and trust so for a lot of folks that's their pediatrician um, for some folks, that's people who are early childhood educators who work with kids in classrooms and daycares and preschools. Uh, for some people, that's you know behavioral psychologists who are practicing, who see families in therapy. Um, Christians love, especially American evangelicals, love to let pastors be experts on everything. And so we have a lot of Pastors who write books on parenting. Some are probably relatively benign, but they're, you know, they're advice from a pastor. And for the most, most of the people who are reading these books, it's not coming from your pastor, it's coming from a famous pastor. And so there's no um, community in common there. Um, I mean, I'd love to say I have sort of green flags for parenting experts, but to be honest, I really don't. I, um, I I think there needs to be a conversation about helping parents cultivate discernment in getting to know their own children, getting to know who they are as parents and what kind of approaches to parenting resonate with them, what kinds of needs their kids have, what kind of sensory issues, what kind of neurodivergence there is dynamics between siblings, gaps between siblings. There's so many variables that determine how we respond to our kids. Um I was talking to last week or two weeks ago now, I had a conversation with Sissy Goff, who is the co host of the podcast Raising Boys and Girls, and she has a new book called The Worry Free Parent. Um and she said that the advice she gives to a lot of her the parents that come and see her is like choose a parenting, influencer, writer, expert, maybe two, that you like, that resonates with you, that the approach seems to work well for your kids. And then just don't let all the other voices in because there are just too many. And they all have their kind of pet concerns and their um, pet interest areas and their claimed expertise. And it's kind of a wild west. And I i think I tend to agree with that. Um, which i realize is probably not a very encouraging answer for parents looking for help but um but yeah the 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 lack of um i don't know the lack of any particular place you can go for a parenting expert i think speaks to how
3: much of a house of cards a lot of this all actually is yeah and i would i would say it's a little red flaggy if There's a Christian parenting person who claims to be that, you know, because some of the self-credentialing parenting empires then build an echo chamber. And it's like, oh, like I'm thinking of Canon Press, you know, which is um Doug Wilson produces a lot of parenting content through Canon Press. And then it's like a one, (laughs) thank you. It's like a one stop shop, right? Like, we'll tell you how to run your marriage. We'll tell you how to run your children. We'll tell you how to decorate your house. Like, we'll tell you everything and then like subscribe for more content. And so it can really become so, you know, any one person who's claiming that is so (laughs) red flaggy. And then for me personally, like as a personal parent, we don't give parent like we've kind of set out from the beginning to be like, we will not be platforming ourselves to give parenting advice, you know? Um, but things I look for as green flags for me are, um, like Kelsey said, you know, is this person uh, aware of child development, of neurodivergence? Like what is their training and background so that I can think if that's someone I want to hear from? Um, from a Christian perspective, I'm always looking like, do they mention Jesus, because so many of these resources have no mention of Jesus, these Christian resources. Um, There's only one, I think, on my shelves that even has Jesus in the title. That's Jesus the Gentle Parent. Many of them don't even have much biblical chapter and verse type support. There's just kind of Christian tropes supporting everything. So I'm always very curious, like, are Are these resources even attempting to look at the life and ministry and example of Jesus? I'm also looking for how do they depict children? You know, are we just talking about children kind of as objects or as dehumanized people? Or are we looking at them as persons worthy of respect, persons made in the image of God? And, And how are they portraying children then? So I'm kind of looking for those things, not so much as green lights, but those become helpful metrics for me to run different resources through to see if I even want to hear from them. <laughs> because, yeah, cultivating discernment is so important. Yeah, and I would add one
2: thing to that. I suppose one major green flag for me is how comfortable is a particular person or resource using language using respectful language towards children. Um, I think there are a lot of Christian resources that sort of poke fun at children's anger, sadness, behavior, um, struggles, you know, belittling them. And I, I think that the resources that are willing to extend respect to children um Not all of them, but I think a lot of them that that 's a green flag for me because it's respecting children's autonomy it 's open to ideas about children having um having rights, having autonomy, having rich internal lives and um, I think that that is really valuable and also very rare
0: so we have about fifteen minutes left, and I have a question for you guys. I would love to have you guys address. Anybody that's in church leadership right now that may be listening to the podcast, we have a decent number of people that are either pastors or in leadership positions within their churches. Um, how would you address them when talking about this stuff? What are things that you want them to know and hear from you?
3: Ooh, that's a great question because so many of so much of this can be um, shared around churches. Or comes with extra weight, right? If your pastor recommends a resource, that comes with the, you know, some credibility, some shared credibility. So my husband's a pastor; he's a priest in the Anglican tradition. You know, so it's it's interesting because there's a lot of overlap with evangelicalism, but uh, there's also not necessarily the kind of topical approach that I see in a lot of evangelical churches, where Kelsey spoke to it earlier. Pastors are perceived as omnicompetent to kind of speak on every topic. So I think my first uh, word would be a word of caution um, to kind of examine uh, your your own impulses as pastors or or youth, youth leaders or you know, family ministers. You bear a kind of authority, and uh, there is a tradition in evangelicalism now that you come with omnicompetence. And to maybe attempt to do some honest soul-searching, like, is that accurate? Are you conflating your experience as normative for everyone? Um, are you assuming that what, you know, is beneficial for your family will be beneficial for everyone? And not that that should silence people, because I do think family, families are looking for help from their church communities, but maybe it, it encourages people to offer some helpful disclaimers of, this is just my advice. <laughs> you know, this is just something I've been thinking about or something I've been I've been trying and um secondly, I would um consider current ministry people to kind of get curious about their own attitudes toward external sources of authority cuz a piece we we I don't think we touched on um is that many of these resources are are strongly skeptical of outside sources of authority um and to kind of explore what that looks like in your church context and are people are people freed up to make decisions for themselves are they empowered you know again this mirrors out like does your church operate in a way that as kelsey said sees the individual um quote child in the church system i'm not i'm not suggesting that we adopt that you know, language unilaterally but in a sense is there An ability to help look at the family that's looking for help in front of you and hear what unique elements are going on in their dynamics and come alongside and support respectfully and with connection versus kind of top top down tell everyone um, what they need to do and how they need to get in line. And so I think unpacking some of these dynamics in families can help people in churches begin to unpack some of them as well both as they seek to serve and support families. Um, I think it also really is helpful, just general education, because if you as a pastor or minister, if this is not part of your experience, we really would love to help you understand what many people in the pews have experienced. Um, Aaron, my husband, will, I don't know, every so often just be like, I hope your book comes out soon <laughs> because there are so many people, I think, in the pews that this intersects with their story where they're experiencing a painful impact of this as they deal with their own childhood experiences or maybe as parents are wondering, why don't my adult children want to be connected with me anymore? What what has gone wrong? So I, I think pastors would be served. Pastors... Therapists, you know, spiritual directors would all be served to kind of explore these dynamics because there's some really unique things going on, and there's a reason. You know, frankly, there's a reason religious trauma is often a trending topic. People carry a lot of a lot of pain that that can be tied into these dynamics. Kelsey, what would you say? Gosh, you have much more ministry experience
2: than I do, so I I second all of what you just said. Um, Yeah, I I guess I would. I would encourage church leaders to do what they can to not to not demonize outside expertise. Um, talking in just broad terms about the culture being out to get us or the culture being against us as a church uh, can really come back to, to bite you when there is research coming out that helps us better understand things like brain development and early childhood education, and I think there is a very persistent skepticism in evangelicalism toward um, what psychology can tell us about um, how children grow and how they learn and why they do what they do. And I think an inability to listen curiously to that information is going to hinder parents as they try to understand their children and respond with grace to them. Um, So I would say that. And I, I also, you know, I go to a church that has a bookstore in the front um and I can think of a couple of books there that I sort of pass and kind of roll my eyes a little bit um not because they are bad but because they are kind of new trending books in parenting and family life that are really written by influencers by people who are writing books about parenting and aspirational family life um that are probably fine for some people, and maybe the the pastor and his family or have found it to be helpful. I don't know, but I think you know, platforming certain resources itself can be a message about what you think Christian family should look like, and I would be really careful about that um, because these um, really well designed, pretty. Books, uh, maybe setting up these hoops for parents, especially moms, uh, to feel like they have to jump through these standards. Um, some of them are aesthetic standards that have really
3: nothing to do with um, faithfulness and the person of Christ. And there's such freedom for the Christian. I think that's what I would want to say to everyone. You know, so much of this, you know, we're zooming in on parenting teaching. But it really echoes with the kind of right way spiritual drivenness that can be very common across the board. And we can kind of think, you know, if you think of like video games is the example we use when when my husband and I have this conversation a lot, you know, of like the kind of quest video games where you're like on a quest to find, you know, to get to the goal is a really different approach than the sandbox kind, which is like you're just placed in this, Um, story world that's been created to explore and to discover. And I think so much of popular Christian teaching period, let alone popular Christian parenting teaching, is quest oriented. Like what's the right path that will guarantee the best outcome? And if you stray but a little, the quest will fail. And there's, it's like a pressure cooker um, on everyone. And I really want to push back against that because I think I want to suggest, at least, or wonder together: What if it's more like the sandbox? So where we are there, we are exploring. We are we are there in in the presence of God, exploring, growing, um, discovering. And in family life, we're we're doing that together, and that I think can maybe hopefully empower us to not be so afraid of all the mistakes or not be so afraid of the high stakes. And instead, trust in the Lord's goodness and preservation of ourselves within that um, and the ability to be connected to Him in that. So again, that echo, because so much of what we learn in Christian family life teaching reflects what we truly believe about God. And I think it's worth asking, do we believe He's there with the swift punishment if we don't comply? Do we believe He's there dissociated from us in our moment of great pain or do we believe he's there with us next to us deeply connected with us and 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 concerned about our well-being so i think um i i would love for (laughs) uh popular christian parenting teaching and and it is changing in some ways there are some more um curious that that approach i like that word for that approach there's some more open approaches um, as different Christian psychologists, mental health professionals, I think, come into the conversation and maybe gently point out alternate ways of doing things. There are more resources available for that, but I think there's so much freedom for the Christian parents and um, the Christian child as well.
1: I mean, this has been, I mean, honestly, this has been like just such an enlightening and an enriching dialogue today. Um, I mean, I've learned a lot. And uh, honestly, like going through both of your Instagram reels, it was, it was great. Like, I really enjoyed it. And it's like, man, there's just a lot of wealth of knowledge here and, and research and time. You take your time before you say things, both of you. And I find that so refreshing. You're not leaning into this haphazardly like, uh, like, like others we've talked about today. But you're really taking your time to approach this in such a graceful and loving way, and it's just refreshing. So I, I thank you both. For, Thanks. Yeah, I thank you both for your work. So I would, I would love um, for our audience. I know, give you both a chance to kind of plug. Where can we find you both today? And then uh, talk a little bit more about uh, other work you're doing here in the future. I know you've got the book coming out, but anything else you'd like to share uh, with our audience about future works or future activity that you're doing out there to talk about these topics?
2: um let's see you can find both of us on instagram and that's where a lot of the content that we're sharing um on this topic is right now it kind of lives there as we work on this book and refine what we're going to talk about and the research that we're doing so you can find both of us there um we're both on twitter as well i write regularly for christianity today um I write um mostly on music and worship and um and the arts broadly for CT um although last week I did have an article go up about um Christian moms and influencer culture online so you can find that on their website
3: as well yeah you can find us Twitter and Instagram, primarily, we are this weekend. So probably by the time the podcast is live, we are going to also have a sign up for a subs- uh, like a newsletter type update that you can get via in email. so that would have information about uh, the book project and release information on that, as well as eventually maybe a periodic special focus via print. But we're doing different series right now. I'm doing, as I mentioned, the Judge a Book by its cover series, kind of looking at those elements. And next up, really want to explore um, some different clips of influencers talking about sin and kind of unpacking some of what we talked about earlier here in the podcast. What does this mean about our belief? What are our theological beliefs about sin? Um, I, I bring, um, I have a master's in theology, so I bring the kind of theological lens and Kelsey brings the historical lens. So she's doing a a deep dive into kind of tracing historical understandings of different doctrines and approaches, even way back into early church history. So we're hoping to kind of do some different topical series, but we, we love to connect. It has been so life-giving and lovely to hear from people on social media love to hear from people, so please do reach out and find us there. Um, I know Christian spaces have not always been safe places for people to talk about these very tender things, and so we kind of count it a privilege and a grace to hear from you, uh, those of you who share different pieces of your story and and where, where your story intersects these teachings.
0: Thank you guys so much. I have loved this conversation. I would love to even have you guys back one day to dive even deeper. We will link all of your socials in the show notes and go follow them I'm sure many of our listeners are going to recognize a lot of the things that you talk about and the books you talk about and the authors you talk about. And I'm really excited for this project and to watch it blossom. Thank you, guys. Thanks
3: so much for having us. Yes, thank you. This is such a delight because I love listening to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Such a treat. Yay. Thank
0: you, guys. I appreciate it.
1: The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and not those of this podcast. This content is presented for informational and educational purposes that constitute fair use, commentary, or criticism. While we make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate, we welcome any comment, suggestion, or correction of errors.